the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What if he's not guilty? Derek Chauvin has been in prison for three years now, probably will die there. He was convicted long before, as it turns out, he was uh, tried for the murder of George Floyd. But Tucker Carlson points out that he may not be guilty. But the question is, did he actually murder George Floyd? And the answer is, well, no, he didn't murder George Floyd. We're not guessing about that. We know it conclusively, thanks to a new court case now underway in Hennepin County, Minnesota. The case was brought by a prosecutor there called Amy Sweezy. She's suing her boss. So the case is not actually about George Floyd or Derek Chauvin, but it tells you an awful lot about both of them. In her deposition, which you should read, Amy Sweezy describes a conversation that she had with the county medical examiner, Andrew Baker, right after George Floyd died. Quote, I called Dr. Baker early that morning to tell him about the case and to ask him if he would perform the autopsy on Mr. Floyd. Sweezy recalls all this under oath in the deposition. Quote, he called me later in the day on that Tuesday, and he told me that there were no medical findings that showed any injury to the vital structures of Mr. Floyd's neck. There were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation. Oh. In other words, George Floyd, according to the official autopsy, was not murdered. He died instead of what we used to call natural causes, which in his case would include decades of drug use, as well as the fatal concentration of fentanyl that was in his system on his final day. So this was not a killing. It was yet another narcotics OD in a country that cords more than 100,000 of them every year. The medical examiner clearly understood that and, in fact, articulated it. And Sweezy explains. He said to me, she recalls in the deposition, Amy... What happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everyone's already decided on? And then he said, quote, this is the kind of case that ends career. George Perry is a former state and federal prosecutor who was on this show during the trial and said Chauvin should be found not guilty. And we're going to have him on after the break. Then in our second half hour, Cal Thomas, a guy who's been writing a nationally syndicated column for over 50 years, is going to talk about the book he's written about those 50 years. So stick around. Well, at the opening of the show, we played you an excerpt from Tucker Carlson's recent episode on X or Twitter, and he quoted correspondence between the medical examiner in Hennepin County, Minnesota, and a member of his staff that showed he didn't find any evidence that Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. So what if he didn't? Well, George Perry is a former state and federal prosecutor who was on this show during the trial and said at the time he believed Chauvin was not guilty. He joins us now. George, thanks for coming back on. Glad to be back with you. So you also said uh, at the time uh, that there was no way that he was going to get a fair trial. Did he? No, he didn't. Um, Look, there had been rioting in Minneapolis Um, The trial was conducted in the middle of a war zone. The courthouse was surrounded by concrete barriers and barbed wire. 
and the jurors who are drawn from Hennepin County, where Minneapolis is located, um, they saw that going in and out of the courthouse every day. And the whole thing was just conducted under the conditions of basically mob rule. So there's no way in the world that Chauvin got a fair trial. That case, the, Chauvin's lawyer had asked for a change of venue, and that should have been granted. So the case could have been tried away from the war zone that was Hennepin County. Well, has there ever been? I mean, you were in, involved in cases like this uh, as a mm-hmm. prosecutor. Has there ever been a more obvious example of the need for a change of venue? Not, not in my experience. I mean, it's crystal clear that case needed to be out of Hennepin County. And I suspect what happened was that uh, no other jurisdiction in Minnesota wanted the case and made that clear to the trial judge. So he just kept it in Hennepin County. But it was it was a hot potato. Um, and given, look, given the threat posed at the time by Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all of the related people who are running around, I mean, the whole country went up in flames over this thing. Yeah, yeah. So no, nobody wanted to have that hot potato land in their community, I'm sure. Well, explain to me, if the, if the purpose or the goal is to get a fair trial for a defendant, why do they get to turn it down? Who, who gets to decide that, and isn't, is, isn't it possible to overrule another jurisdiction and say it's too bad if you don't want it, you're getting it? Well, I mean, the judge, the trial judge was the one who should have granted the change of venue. And if there was a dispute as to where the case should go, that would be decided, I would think, by the Supreme Court in Minnesota. Yeah, that's Uh, what I would have the ultimate say on where it would land. Uh, Look, I don't think that there's anybody in the entire Minnesota legal establishment, including the courts, that had the courage, other than the defense lawyers who stepped up to represent these police officers, nobody had the courage to stand up and say and do what needed to be done in this case. Um, So, you know, when people were talking, well, maybe uh, Chauvin would would be successful on appeal and the other officers, you know, would be successful on appeal, I knew that wasn't going to happen. There's nobody with that kind of courage in the appellate courts to step in and put an end to this. Well, what would change that? Uh, Tucker Carlson uh, showed it on his uh, on his uh, X feed. The the, mm-hmm. uh, the the comments or the statements. And I guess it's in a deposition from the person on the uh, the staff with uh, access to the medical examiner, who told her yeah. that uh, there was no evidence that uh, that. that <clears throat> the injuries were caused by Chauvin. And that's exactly what he said in his original uh, report, autopsy report. But then he was contacted by the medical examiner from the District of Columbia, a very angry man named Dr. Roger Mitchell. And Mitchell said to uh, Baker, the Hennepin County medical examiner, he said, look, I'm getting ready to run an article in the Washington Post. It's going to be very critical of you. He said, you don't want to be the medical examiner who tells everyone they didn't see what they saw. You don't want to be the smartest person in the room and be wrong. And so he leaned on Baker to change his report. So Baker comes out with a second report, which has some kind of double talk, even though he left in the part about there's no evidence of injury to the uh, 
airways or strangulation or anything like that. No physical findings. But he just threw in some ambiguous language about police subdual, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And that's what they ran with. But it was interesting that at the trial, the key expert witness called by the state was a doctor um, who was not a, a pathologist, but yeah. he, he was a pulmonologist, and he testified that, oh, yeah, here's, here's Chauvin kneeling on the guy's neck, and here's the precise moment that life left Floyd's body. And it was utter nonsense, but he testified to it, and the jury bought it. And frankly, I don't think he was adequately cross-examined by defense counsel, but I have refrained all these years from being critical of defense counsel because he was in the courtroom. He was the one ducking the bullets and doing the fight. And I don't want to criticize a, <coughs> a guy who was in the trenches doing the fighting, but I certainly would have taken a radically different approach to the trial of the Chauvin case. I just would have come out with both guns blazing. I doubt it would have made a difference in terms of the outcome because you had a terrorized jury in the middle of a war zone and they knew they had to have known that if they acquitted Chauvin, the city was going to go up in flames and they might very well be hunted down by the mob themselves. So the outcome was preordained once it was decided the case was going to go forward in Hennepin County. But I think for purposes of the record and of what we know, it would have been much better if there had been a very forceful defense raised along the lines of Chauvin and the other police officers not only did not kill Floyd, they didn't do anything to even harm him. If you look at the at the the uh, body camera video, <clears throat> they were exceedingly considerate of Floyd when they were trying to get him into the police car. And he's saying, I have claustrophobia. Don't put me in there. They didn't hit him over the head and shove him in the car. One of them says, well, look, we'll roll the window down for you. And another one says, we'll turn the air conditioning on for you. I mean, these were not cops who were trying to brutalize anybody. They were just trying to get them into the squad car. And when he, when he wouldn't get in, when the, he was resisting him, while he was still upright and mobile, he's shouting, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Nobody had him around the neck. Nobody was kneeling on him. None of that. He was upright and mobile, and he's shouting, I can't breathe. So the evidence was there in abundance that, A, they didn't do anything to hurt him, and B, he didn't die because of anything they did. He died because, as they found on autopsy, he had severe coronary artery disease, he had a history of hypertension, and he had a load of fentanyl and methamphetamine on board that contributed to his overall poor medical condition. And basically what he died of was, was what they call excited delirium or basically a, a heart attack a cardiac arrhythmia brought on by his poor health condition, his severe coronary artery disease, hypertension, and the drugs in the system. He went into cardiac arrhythmia and he died. That's what happened. Mm -hmm. But we have been sold this line that, no, the police officers, I mean, think about this. <clears throat> Chauvin is there. They've got Floyd on the ground. Floyd wound up on the ground, by the way, because he said he wanted to be down there. So they took him out of the police car because that's what he wanted. And they had an ambulance on the way. So they said, okay, well, we'll hold him here on the street. So there, in public, in full view of the crowd, people with cell phone cameras filming the whole thing, 
we're supposed to believe that Chauvin deliberately choked him out in public while staring at these people with cell phone cameras. Nobody's that crazy. Nobody does that. They wanted to kill Floyd. They would have taken him to a remote location and killed him there. You don't kill people in public staring into cell phone cameras. The case never made any sense, but people knew what they knew. And so you have these four police officers who, in my estimation, are utterly blameless, who are now in prison for God knows how long. Is there, uh, it does, is, is um, intent required there? Or otherwise it would be manslaughter. In order to have murder, he, there, there has to be intent, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, this was, according to the state of Minnesota, this was, this was cold-blooded murder. This was uh, deliberate. This is what they intended. So he, they, they, I mean, they, they expect, well, and the jury believed it, they bought it anyway, <clears throat> that this guy oh, yeah. decided he wanted to kill somebody in public, on a public street in front of a bunch of cameras. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the whole, that's the whole prosecution case right there. When you boil it down to its components, that's exactly what they contended, and that's exactly what the jury found in its verdict. I mean, I'm quick to add that the jury would have, would have said the moon was made out of cream cheese if it could get them out of having to come back with a not guilty verdict because mm-hmm. they knew what was going to happen. Everybody was terrified of what was going to happen well, if they acquitted. So We're talking to George Perry. He's a former state and federal prosecutor who believes that George, uh, um, I'm sorry, Derek Chauvin uh, should not be in prison right now. And I'm wondering, with this stuff that just seems to be bubbling up here in the last couple of weeks, Tucker Carlson had it up on his feed, which gets millions of views. I've, I've seen mm-hmm. some other print uh, uh, articles on it. Um, and uh, I've seen the statement, and people here on the show have heard the statement, that uh, the, um, the the staff member, the correspondence between her and the yeah. examiner, um, yeah. isn't that, is that enough to get the guy a new trial? Look, I, I doubt it. And and the reason I say that is nobody in Minnesota is going to want to reopen that can of worms. And so, you so, know. So this guy's going to be in prison the rest of his he, life. I think he could. I think he could. I, I'm not sure what the sentence was, but he uh, worked out a deal where he was going to wind. He also pled to charges in federal court just so he could do his time in federal prison. Um, so I don't know how long he's going to be in for altogether, but I don't see a new trial coming out of this only because the, uh, judiciary in Minnesota is not going to want to reopen that can of worms. And let's face it, black lives matter and Antifa and, and all of the people who believe in them and are supporting their cause, including, I might add the attorney general of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, who is a radical. Mm-hmm. To put it kindly, um, they're all on board with what happened to Chauvin. And, uh, you know, nobody's spoken up on his behalf up to now. I mean, I wrote a series of articles back at the time, and I made some TV appearances and stuff like that for what it was worth. <clears throat> but I have to tell you, when I wrote my articles, uh, people were afraid to publish them. But to, the, to their credit, the people at the American Spectator published my articles, even though they were fearful of what was going to happen to the American Spectator in terms of 
being firebombed and, and threatened and all the rest. Well, and the only reason that you're, people, you could possibly disagree is that you're a racist. The, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're, 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 yeah, you approve of black men being strangled to death on public streets by brutal white cops. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, no, well, but that's, that, that's what happened. Yeah, and in a piece that I saw you wrote for The Spectator back uh, a couple years ago, you said the, that the presumption of innocence in American jurisprudence is jurisprudence. I'm sorry, is sacrosanct, but it's also complete fiction. What do you mean by that? Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, if you go to a criminal trial, every defense lawyer is going to stand up and say, "The man has only been accused. The defendant has only been accused of a crime, but he has the cloak of innocence." And he keeps that cloak of innocence until it has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he's guilty. The fact of the matter is, jurors are going to look at a defendant and say, the guy had to have done done it because otherwise he wouldn't be here. He wouldn't have been charged. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the default position all jurors take. They won't say it because they're too smart to say that because they know that'll get them disqualified if they want to be on the jury. But I think the default position most people have is, yeah, the guy's been criminally charged. There had to be a reason for it. He probably did what they say he did. And by the way, 90% of the time, that would be correct. But the legal fiction that we all work with is you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. Okay. Yeah. And and you have, I only have about a minute left. I wanted to get to that because in this case... The jurors got seated, uh, were seated there despite admitting that they believed Chauvin was guilty, some of them, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And that, but and they convinced them that, well, yeah, but I could be talked out of it. Exactly. Well, every judge does the same thing because you have jurors that say, no, I think he did it. And the judge will say, well, you know, would you be willing to put any preconceived notions aside and consider this case strictly on the evidence? Presented in this courtroom, my instructions on the law. Can you be fair and impartial? Nobody, and I mean nobody, is ever going to say, well, Judge, I can't be fair and impartial. They're mm-hmm. going to say, oh, yeah, I can be fair. And with that, the juror is rehabilitated. And even though he said already, I think the guy did it, that person now under the law is qualified to be a juror. George, i got 30 seconds left with George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor. Where's it going? What's, what happens next, if anything? articles. I'm working on some right now. Mm-hmm. I, I did a documentary a number of years ago, which was, I thought, pretty good. Uh, and, and I just, as a matter of fact, just for you call, I called you, that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, documentarian was on the line with me. They're talking about doing a follow-up documentary. So from that standpoint, there's going to be a lot of noise, but I don't see anything happening that's going to get Chauvin and the other police officers out of their fix. Wow. Well, I'm glad you uh, came on the show, and I hope I can talk to you again as this thing seems to keep bubbling up, see where it goes. Well, I'll be happy to talk with you anytime. Thank you, George. I really appreciate it. And that's uh, George Perry, former state and federal prosecutor. I'll be right back. Okay, well, Kyle Thomas has been around for a long time. He's been writing columns and books and doing commentary on TV and radio for more than 50 years. He's seen a lot, and he's written about it in a new book called A Watchman in the Night, What I've Seen in Over 50 Years Reporting in America, and Cal joins us now. Cal, thanks for coming on. 
I've been around a long time. Boy, do I feel old. <laughs> well, I've been around almost as long, or maybe longer. I don't know. We'll see. But um, well, you sound young. <laughs> <laughs> well, normally, um, I don't think I'd, I'd make this my first question in a situation like this, but I have to start with this. Have you ever seen worse than it is right now? What are we talking about? The United States? Yes, uh, the United States. Well, yeah, just everything. Washington, D.C., you know, what's what's well, happening? Everything comes down to leadership, John, and uh, I think that because the current administration is projecting weakness on a number of levels, uh, that uh, our adversaries feel empowered to go and uh, do certain things they would not have done under Reagan. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. And the economy, we have a $33 trillion debt. No nation has ever been able to, to sustain itself with that level of debt in history. Then we have an open border doing nothing about that. Our direct lies and says the border is secure. Anybody who is not blind can not. And then we have a continuing loss of a shared moral value system. Now anything goes, including drag queen story time in kindergarten. You conclude that we are a nation in decline. That's exactly what the president of China, Xi Jinping, says. He has said he believes America is in decline. I define anybody to give me evidence to the contrary. Yeah, and uh, has there ever been a bigger difference between a Republican and a Democrat than there is now? You know, I, th I think uh, you'd have to go back uh, possibly to the Vietnam War period uh, to the uh, rights movement to see the kinds of divisions that we're seeing now. But I think it's far worse. Nobody in Washington talks to each other anymore. They come into deep morning. They go into their little caucuses, Republicans and Democrats. They get their talking points to go out on TV. But nobody is talking about solving problems. We're not talking about cure for cancer. We're talking about problems that could be solved if people of goodwill would get together and do it. But the problem in Washington is if you actually solve something, you lose the issue. Perfect examples. Let's know that. Everybody knows it's going to run money in just a few years and that they'll either have to raise or reduce benefits. But sides, especially the Democrats, uh, want the issue. And so over and over and over again. But the ultimate uh, problem, uh, the ultimate uh, uh, problem, John, is not that uh, not the politicians so much as it is the voters. We elect these people. Responsibility is on our shoulders. Well, we're talking to uh, Cal Thomas, and the book is Watchmen in the Night, What I've Seen in Over 50 Years Reporting in America. So you've been around longer than 50 years, which means you were around for Watergate. I was too, but I wasn't working in the media then, but, but there was no cable news, no Internet, and no social media way back then. Can you imagine how much different it would have been if all those things had existed at the time? Well, it could have been, but, uh, you know, I think uh, Watergate and uh, the Vietnam conflict are what has contributed mostly to the cynicism of many journalists. I grew up with some of the greatest journalists I've ever known. I was a copy boy at NBC News in Washington in the early 1960s. And Oker, who covered the Kennedy White House. And then you had great reporters on CBS, Walter Cronkite, Roger Mudd. These names will not be familiar to people who are much younger. Today, you've got a lot of people coming from activist groups and the Democrat Party 
on the networks. You take George Stephanopoulos, uh, Jake Tapper, uh, Chris Matthews, who used to be on uh, yeah. uh, CNBC. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of these uh, were Democrat operatives. And, they, and this is one of the reasons, by the way, and Gallup just released its annual poll on uh, trust in the media, and it's at an all-time low. But this is the only industry, John, that doesn't care what its consumers think. Trust in the media now is down in the 30 percentile, as low as it's ever been. But uh, they don't care. They read only their own stuff. They talk to each other. Uh, everything else between New York and California is flyover territory. I, I have a theory on this. I'd like to run it by I uh, about what's changed. I got into local TV news back in the late 70s, and um, there were a lot of old newsmen around, guys who had started out as UPI and AP reporters and then got into radio and then got into TV. And they were newsmen. Mm. And I, I, they, they loved news, working in news. Yeah. And the, the, what I've seen, uh, and, and it's just a theory of mine, what I think the big change has been is that there are people now working in all forms of media who are much more interested in being on TV or on radio or enjoy being on TV or radio much more than they enjoy actually covering the news. It's being the TV personality or radio personality that drives them rather than wanting to do news. And I think the old-timers like, you know, Walter Cronkite, he flew bombing missions in World War II. Yeah. Well, you're right, John. That's that's part of it. the other part is that uh, many people come into this uh, as activists. Uh, they come in with an agenda. I think the best comment I ever heard uh, on this was by David Brinkley, who said it's impossible to be a so we must try to be fair. The other thing about uh, the, that its greater power is the power to ignore the things that are not covered. If you take a look at... Uh, the networks, and then you look at Fox, for example. If you read the Washington Post or you look at the Washington Times and some other conservative media, you were thinking, you'd think we were, you were looking at two different countries. Mm-hmm. So the major media ignore stuff or they slant stuff. Look, the New York Times just had to put out this, uh, this uh, statement that their early reporting on this supposed hospital bombing in Gaza that allegedly killed 500 people was not correct. They used a Hamas release. I mean, Hamas lies. They're terrorists. And the New York Times and the Washington Post went with this story as if it was accurate. And this is what contributes to the lack of trust in the media by the public. Because of the Internet, Americans are much better informed than ever. Or are they? I guess maybe more informed isn't necessarily better. Yeah. Well, you have one generation away from losing it all. You have to be active between elections. You just can't show up on election day and forget the rest of the year because the other side is not forgetting it. Uh, It's like uh, getting in shape. You can't get in shape by watching an exercise video. You've got to go to the gym, uh, work out. Uh, So uh, we are are unique, the United States. Uh, We are an oasis in a vast desert of totalitarianism, religious oppression, denial of women's rights, lack of a free press. And if we don't continue to renew these things, then we're going to lose them. And once you've lost them, it's extremely difficult to get them back again. 
We're talking to Cal Thomas. His book is A Watchman in the Night, What I've Seen in Over 50 Years Reporting in America. Uh, Cal, has the definition of truth changed? I mean, men can get pregnant now. That, that's the truth in, in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's, I call it the Pontius Pilate version. Uh, what is truth? Uh, truth is not uh, subjective. It's objective. Uh, today, if you claim to have truth, one of various kinds of phobes, a racist, a bigot, or whatever. But, uh, and schools, you know, if you, get, if you get your math problem wrong, if you put down one and one is three instead of one and one is two, then it's okay. Uh, no more valedictorians or salutatorians because it might make the successful feel bad. Uh, and, and so we attack the successful and we subsidize the unsuccessful and are shocked to find that we get more of one and less of the other. Uh, truth exists. And uh, But now we've got a lot of mainline churches that uh, say you can come in and have your own truth. It doesn't matter what it is. We'll tell you what you want to hear rather than what is true. And that's another reason we have a, a undermining of the moral value system in this country. So you say you've been a watchman. What have you been watching out for, if you've summed it up well, for I 50 years? The, yeah, I took, uh, I took the title from uh, an Old Testament uh, verse where the ancient Israelites used to post a watchman on the wall at night after the gates were closed to keep the bad guys out, invading armies, that sort of thing. And so I kind of see myself as uh, looking out for the, uh, the bad guys, uh, massive national debt, open borders, all the rest of it, and trying to remind my readers that truth does exist, right and wrong exists, uh, you know, justice uh, for criminals exists, or it used to, uh, and uh, we need to return to those values and virtues that build America, America, or we're going to lose them. It's not a column collection, but it's kind of a reminder of what happened every year since my column began in 1984, and what we can learn from those things. You'll find some some excellent endorsements from people on the left and the right, uh, which I'm kind of proud of because they may not like what I believe. And I see that you were a friend of Ted Kennedy's, or he was a friend of yours, or you were friends, anyway. We were. And, uh, you know, Skip Gates of Harvard, who has done this marvelous series on PBS on African-American lives, friend of Barack Obama. And then uh, another endorser of the book is Pat Sajak of Fortune. So I feel I've run the entire gamut from left to right. Yeah, I don't hate anybody for their politics, and uh, I think it's really bad for people to do that. And uh, Ted and I became friends uh, through a interesting situation uh and uh i've you know at his house once and uh, uh if you get beyond the personalities and the politics and realize that we're fellow only share your position with someone else but listen to their position as well but today we just lob these rhetorical bombs at each other. We label people right-wing, left-wing, MAGA Republicans, secular human progressives. I remember somebody asked me once, what's your denominational background? I said, fives, tens, twenties, and fifties, and hundreds. I'm not going to let you put a label on me you don't know the meaning of. Yeah. And humor helps, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, where, where does Joe Biden rank among uh, not just the presidents, but the D.C. politicians that you've covered? Well, I think he is... 
he's not really running the country. I mean, I, I feel sorry for him. He's, he's really a puppet. Uh, there are holdovers from the Obama administration and other people of like mind that are actually running the country. He's just out there. Uh, but this, is, I think, is... And that's why we see all of this chaos. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, none of this step happened on his watch. And you'll remember that uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, let out all of the American hostages the day that Reagan was inaugurated because he really felt that uh, Reagan was a cowboy and would bomb the heck out of Tehran. That's the kind of adversaries. But now they don't fear us anymore at all. you got Xi Jinping who's looking at Taiwan with his mouth watering, saying, gee, you know, Russia's got Ukraine tied down, you got all this stuff going on in the Middle East, uh, and uh, aid. Did uh, Donald Trump surprise you? What was your first impression when he came down that escalator? Or, or your prediction, anyway? <laughs> well, my first impression was uh, that character matters. And a lot, especially of evangelicals, said about Bill Clinton. They said he wasn't fit for office because of his personal life. So my first impression, knowing Trump's background, and I interviewed him once in Trump Tower in New York, uh, was that he was a odd uh, man, morally. And I thought that that would uh, uh, spill over in... Uh, spending went up considerably under his administration. Uh, and frankly, I have hoped that we wouldn't have a rematch next year between Biden and Trump, but it sure looks that way, at least from the Republicans. I don't know if the Democrats are going to want to keep him or not because the polls are trending in Trump's direction. i got about a minute left. I'm just wondering, uh, Cal Thomas, if could you write a book that would be only about what you've seen or heard off the record? Oh, my. Yes, I certainly could. <laughs> and things that I yeah, witnessed one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one with people. But, you know, you have to be careful. Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, you read my columns, uh, I, I don't attack people. I try to uh, attack ideas or support ideas that I agree with. But, uh, uh, you know, attacking people personally or pointing out their moral flaws. All The scriptures say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that includes me. So uh, just digging all this stuff up, unless it is related to policy or unless it's re related to a severe character flaw that, in my judgment, uh, inhibits the credibility of a good... I, I stay away from the personal attack. And you also have done a lot of radio because you got it in just a minute. Um, oh, oh, it's a watchman in the night, what I've seen in over 50 years reporting in America by Cal Thomas. Cal, thanks, and good luck with the book. Thank you so much, John. Good. We'll be right back. Well, I talked to uh, Cal Thomas there at the end, and I asked him that question about off the record, and that's something I've always wondered about um, that I don't like the uh, whole concept of it, and I see it a lot happening in uh, in more in news and politics than I did in sports and all the years I did sports. Um, I don't get the whole off-the-record thing. They have these dinners in Washington or these little get-togethers in Washington or that even happens at the front of Air Force One during a campaign, and the candidate or the politician uh, will come, the office holder will come back, 
and meet with the media, and the, it's understood that whatever he says there, uh, there is off the record. And I don't get that. I just don't get it. It's not, if, if he said it, he said it. And if you're a reporter and it's your job to report what he said, you don't, you don't go write a story and, and not include maybe a little morsel there that, that the man or woman threw out at you and you're under some kind of an obligation to not report it because it's off the record. An old baseball writer named Charlie Feeney used to cover the Pirates for the Post-Gazette, and he was a beat guy. So he was a reporter, not a columnist, and he was an old-school kind of guy. And he, had, he, he let everybody he covered know. He, let, he covered the Pirates for a million years. He, he, he let the general manager, the manager, all the players know, nothing's off the record. Don't tell me something's off the record, because if you tell me something, it's going in the paper if I think it should go in the paper. And the reason he didn't uh, uh, believe in off the record was that reporters, media, could be manipulated by the people they were covering because if you didn't want them to re- – if you knew something that was, uh, was about to become known was going to hurt you and you knew it was kind of inevitable that it was going to get out, you could go to Charlie Feeney and, and say, hey, Charlie, I want to tell you something, but it's off the record – now you know it's not going to get in the paper because he uh, agreed that it was not on the record. And then if you're Charlie Feeney, you're worrying that, well, if I don't report this, the guy working for the Pittsburgh Press may get the story on his own and he's going to report it. So he told people, I don't want to hear about off the record. And the reason I asked Cal that question, um, I didn't have time. I was going to go into If I had time, I would have gone into it with him about the whole off the record thing because the reason I asked him that question, 50 years of, of things that were told to him off the record that America doesn't know about because that whatever the person said to him was preceded by off the record. So I, I just, I've never, uh, never liked that concept. And meanwhile, uh, one other thing here before I go, we had a guy named Bobby Haar on the show last week. He has a website called, uh, or he has a, He's, got, he's doing a documentary, a video of homelessness in Pittsburgh. You can find him at Eyes on Pittsburgh on Twitter and uh, Instagram and all kinds of places, YouTube. So he, he did a piece on, he did a long video on a homeless encampment on the south side. And eventually the city came and cleaned it up. It was really, really bad. Well, he he got a hold of me the other day. He said, I think I know where they moved to. And now he sends me a video that I'm looking at right now. It's the, Herod, the Three Rivers Heritage Trail, which is a nice bike trail walking path along the river on the south side. And he's got pictures here of tents. It's the same stuff. Now they're doing it on a bike path, walking path. So people, I guess, are supposed to ride by on their bike, a woman by herself, is supposed to ride by on a bike, and there's a tent there, and she doesn't know who's living there and what to expect from the person who's living there. So that's that's what they've done. They've moved it to someplace worse, I guess, and not as visible, but maybe worse. That's your city at work. He's going to keep me posted on it, but you can check it out at Eyes on Pittsburgh. E, I'm sorry, E-Y-E-S on P-G-H, not Pittsburgh. Eyes on P-G-H, at Eyes on Pittsburgh. PGH. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.